Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Last week, after a false alarm COVID scare, and a juror was dismissed because her work schedule was just not accommodating. Right off the bat, I want to ask you, are we asking too much of jurors at times when they have these kind of work conflicts? In her situation, she was a recent high school graduate, also caring for her mother, and had a job where her boss was not willing to or able to pay her for her time to serve on the jury. So what are your thoughts? It's a big issue that is talked about not enough. Jurors are paid well less than minimum wage. And so if they're trying to support themselves or their family and their employer is not big enough to support paying them while they're on jury duty and who wants to use their vacation time that maybe is accrued for jury duty. They get paid, I believe it's $15 a day here in California. Minimum wage now is roughly $15 an hour in California. So you're getting paid for one hour to take up your whole day to go to jury duty. This is a problem. And in this case specifically, I believe the juror also, the judge had asked her to see if she could pick up a shift at night as well, which is Ridiculous. I mean, he's not wrong that maybe she could have done that, but okay, great. So she has to go do her duty to our society all day first and then go work an eight-hour shift. That's exceptionally unreasonable. Further, we have an issue going on where jurors sit on these murder trials, among others, and they see horrible things and suffer from PTSD, for example. And we do nothing to take care of these people who will sit through weeks and weeks of horrific, far worse than the worst horror movie you can imagine. And they're seeing that presented to them as well. That long, long list of exhibits, thousands of items, mostly emails, text messages, news articles. I didn't see... I don't think they're going to be wheeling in a scale model of the Edison or anything like that. It's all digital. How is the prosecution going to avoid completely overwhelming the jury with information? I think that might be part of their strategy is to overwhelm the jury with information because they're going to present it as evidence that proves her guilt. And so an overwhelming amount might be part of the strategy. So they go back to the jury room to deliberate and think to themselves and argue amongst themselves. Wow, can you believe there was so much evidence? How do you not believe that that's beyond a reasonable doubt? That she acted intentionally to mislead investors and others regarding what they were doing and what they knew they were capable of doing. So that overwhelming number is to convince them of this beyond a reasonable doubt. I just think that that's the strategy. 
And the defense will, of course, then take the opposite approach of, oh, that was so complicated you can't understand. You couldn't even keep track of what they were saying. They were doing that to overwhelm you. We're here to tell you she's a person. She just needs to present that I believed we could do it. That's why we kept fighting. That's why we fought all the way to the end. We weren't committing fraud. We didn't know we couldn't do it. We could. We just needed more time and money. Sonny Balwani's team requested to have some seats reserved in the courtroom so they could come in and observe and see what's going on. And they were told, no, absolutely not. And what happened? Usually what is done is it's a first come, first serve to go sit in the courtroom, that there aren't reserved seats. I don't care who you are and that you have another trial related to these exact same sets of facts and that everything that happens in this trial is relevant to you because there's a court record. So was it like they were asking a favor? Yes. I will say, though, I mean, I'm not a judge, so I can't speak for the judge. Remember, all of this is discretionary at the hands of the judge, Judge Davila, in this case. He has total control over his own courtroom. He can choose to say, yes, I will reserve two seats. These are not... So, so for example, who would normally get a reserved seat? Let's say Elizabeth Holmes' mother wants to be there every day and she's 18 years old, Elizabeth Holmes. She's not, of course. A judge would often defer and say, you know what, I'm going to reserve a seat for the parent. Or in the case of a murder trial, the deceased victim's family, maybe I'm going to reserve seats for them so they can observe the proceedings of the alleged murderer of their child. In this case, Sonny Balwani is an, I, I, is another defendant. Again, the way a trial works is Balwani's defense attorneys will use the transcripts and evidence, exhibits that are presented at this trial in his own trial in his defense so the requirement that his attorneys sit and attend, I don't believe is one that requires the judge to allow them to reserve a seat. I believe in this case that the judge made the right call saying you can stand in line with everybody else. And if you get in, you get in. And if you don't, you know what? Maybe you should have gotten in line earlier. Last Thursday, the prosecution called former Theranos employee Denise Yam to the stand. She was the controller at Theranos, and she shed more light on Theranos' financials. Denise Yam outlined in Elizabeth Holmes, a CEO who did not really want other outside entities looking at the books. And on a month-to-month basis, she had to pick and choose which vendors she would be paying And we heard prosecutors describe a financial scenario in which Theranos paid out millions and millions to PR firms, media corporations, attorneys, and didn't seem to have the same enthusiasm for purchasing scientific equipment, things to actually contribute to the development of the product. 
Prosecutor Robert Leach said that Holmes was not open about the fact that the company earned no money at all in 2012 and 2013. They only made $150,000 in 2014, but she was falsely claiming that they were going to bring in $140 million that year. How is the defense going to spin that in her favor? This is why there aren't silver bullets as we see on TV. This witness actually is not very strong for the prosecution. This is part of the prosecution's process to build up a pattern showing that Elizabeth Holmes committed this fraud, knowing that she was lying. Because standing alone, this is easy for the defense to rip apart. Because every startup goes through this. They go through a period where there isn't revenue, where they project, oh, we're going to make $140 million and they make a million. That's part of how Silicon Valley works. That's how startups work. You don't know when that revenue is actually coming in. They're called projections, which are just guesses. Now, to the question of, and that's how the defense is going to argue it. Look, this is what every startup does. That's how Twitter started. That's how Instagram started. That's how Snap, Facebook, they all start with, hey, we're going to make a billion dollars soon. And, and they don't. And then they eventually do for the winners. But that's what you don't hear about. For every winner in Silicon Valley that becomes a Facebook, a Google, a Snapchat, there are 99 others that folded, that had those same projections and failed. Were they committing fraud? No. That's part of how Silicon Valley works is we create something. It's like rolling the dice at a casino of whether or not it's going to make it. And in this case, in particular, it's a private company. And so when you talk about, oh, wasn't wanting to share the books, of course not. It's private. A publicly traded company has requirements. A private company, depending on what they negotiated with the investors and certain securities laws, there's some detail there. But generally speaking, there's not a requirement that they have to share the books with somebody. Further, in a cash-strapped startup environment, you have to pick and choose which vendors you're paying. That is how the defense is going to present this. And it is totally normal, and you can talk to any entrepreneur who has started and failed, and they're all going to talk about this exact same set of circumstances. And that's the, like I said, that's the challenge for the prosecution is they're going to have to weave these different witnesses and these exhibits into a big story that says, no, 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 it's, it wasn't just a startup experience here. She actually did more and she did more by, and this is where those texts are going to become really relevant. If she was telling people, don't you dare tell them the truth about what's going on. You lie to them. That's the key here is that there had to have been untruths told. Hey, look, if you're telling an investor, look, this is all a crapshoot. You know that. And then they come back and go, oh, you, you committed fraud. No, I warned you. And there might be a document that there are no sent to these investors that said, look, we don't know for a fact of how this is all going to work out. It's if they're lying and changing numbers, which I don't believe we heard from this witness. If they were changing numbers, if they were falsifying information, those are closer to your silver bullets. But just saying, 
I had to choose which vendors I'm paying. That every company does that. What about Elizabeth Holmes forging a Pfizer approval? Well, there's a difference between colloquial forgery and legal forgery, of course. And I, I don't believe that in this case, the, the Pfizer letter that you're referring to, this approval, meets the legal standard of forgery, which almost always centers around falsifying a signature. But putting it on Pfizer letterhead, that is pretty damning. I, I will tell you that that does lend itself toward fraud. Why are you putting on Pfizer letterhead an approval letter that says, oh, yes, of course, this Theranos product is fantastic, et cetera, whatever that letter allegedly said, and it didn't actually come from Pfizer, that bolsters the prosecution's case and lends itself towards showing malintent. In addition to Denise Yam, we also heard from Erica Chung. She was a former Theranos lab technician. She very early on began to notice that things were not adding up. She was a whistleblower and she began to call attention to the fact that there were serious problems. And the attorney for Theranos at the time, David Boyce, threatened to sue her. You seriously caution people against threatening to sue. Why? If the person you're threatening to sue has a backbone or a good attorney, then they'll call your bluff. And it's not necessarily a strong move. It can be if you think you're talking to somebody who's weak and that you can push over. It can't be if you're talking to somebody, again, who's like, I know the law. I know how to handle this. And too bad for you. And by the way, threatening me, I'm going to bring that up in court when, if and or when you do actually sue. I'm going to use that as an argument against you. Look, you were threatening me. That's not it. That's not the way to do stuff. And you have to be careful threatening people. Depends. You can cross a line and you can be doing committing illegal behavior yourself. I think they did cross a line. She says they were following her. There was a man following her stalking her and she had to have colleagues walk her to her car and then he jumped out of the car approached her and handed her this letter a warning letter from theranos that sounds like intimidation is that a stepping over any legal lines i think at the time that this transpired it was not necessarily illegal uh, california has updated stalking laws in recent years where you could be potentially found that you were stalking somebody with that type of behavior, but it depends. And especially in a public area, those, those laws have very different meaning than if they're entering your property. Also, if she was on Theranos property and this was a Theranos employee, totally different rules apply. Because as an employee, they likely in their employment contract uh, had all kinds of clauses about their ability to monitor and non-disparagement. But a whistleblower is a protected statute as well. So if she actually is a whistleblower, there are very specific protections for, for whistleblowers as well. Someone waiting outside the courtroom last week started yelling things like, me too, 
and other things in support of Elizabeth Holmes as she was entering the courtroom. The judge suggested that something like that may have caused a mistrial. Is it that easy to cause a mistrial? And could someone strategically make something like that happen? Yes. However, let's note what happened here. There was one person who was yelling as the, it was at the jury as they were coming in that this Me Too comment, it has to reach a certain level. There are standards around that. And here the judge is warning, and this is why they require people to stand outside. And this is often also why you see attorneys hustling their clients in and sometimes through back doors and secret entrances because nobody wants a mistrial. Let's, let's be clear here. A mistrial is not a good thing for any party unless you're actually losing because a mistrial means delayed justice. Delayed justice for the prosecution, delayed justice for the defendant. The defendant believes that they're not guilty. Delayed justice means that much more time and money that they have to spend defending themselves. It's it, it's bad all the way around. I, I strongly, strongly discourage anybody from attempting to interfere with the jury. And by the way, jurisdictions have jury tampering laws as well. You could go to jail yourself for tampering with a jury. So if if that judge thought that this heckler's actions rose to the level of uh, causing a mistrial, it's possible. I'd have to review the jury tampering laws in California, which I have not done. But it is possible that that person could have been charged. It's not worth it. Don't do that. Don't interfere with a, with the process. That It's wrong. And you could end up in very serious trouble yourself. Next week. We can expect to hear from more witnesses. At some point, we're likely to hear from former Wall Street Journal journalist John Carreyrou, who really broke the story on Theranos. The defense is also planning to call three members of the prosecution. Why is this so unusual? It's shocking. It's not even just unusual. It's extremely rare to call the prosecution as a witness. It's also extremely rare that a judge would allow the defense to call the prosecution as a witness. Further, there are really severe limits on what the defense can even ask the prosecution as a witness. So I believe there are three of the members of the U.S. Attorney's Office that they're looking to put on the stand And I I don't know, the only thing that you can really do in that circumstance that I'm aware of would be to ask the prosecutor if the prosecutor was doing interviews, for example. In a criminal case, let's say it's murder. If a detective interviewed the defendant, if another police sergeant interviewed the um, defendant, and if the prosecutor on their own, had their own separate interview with the defendant, I could potentially call the prosecutor regarding inconsistencies 
between these different interviews. The only other circumstance that I can think of off the top of my head where calling the prosecutor would have any basis would be to ask them something like, uh, very specific about, did you turn over all of the evidence? What evidence did you not turn over? Because there are laws about that. But what prosecutor is going to go on the stand and admit, oh, I didn't give you this piece of information and admit their own potential criminality in those circumstances? This is exceptionally unusual. It's an odd circumstance. And, And again, oddly, is that Judge Davila is allowing it to move forward, which tells me that... There is something very specific that the defense is looking for from the prosecutor. This is not a, to use the term from TV shows, this is not a fishing expedition with the prosecutor. This is going to be very narrow, very specific, and the judge is going to be watching it closely. Thank you for listening to Law Junkie Show. Please follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Law Junkie Show. Subscribe on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere you like to listen to podcasts. And if you have any ideas or suggestions, and if you have any ideas or suggestions for the show or any questions, contact us at info at lawjunkieshow.com. You can leave us a voicemail message on that website. And if you're really enjoying the show, if you could take a minute to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, that would make all the difference. Thanks. Disclaimer, Law Junkie's show, including its guests and hosts, are not giving out legal advice, but discussing general legal issues. Law Junkie show does not guarantee that the legal issues discussed are fully accurate, and it's not specific to whatever legal issues you may be experiencing. None of this advice is to be acted upon in your situation. Please seek legal advice from a licensed attorney in your jurisdiction for your individual legal matter.